Okay, we're continuing tonight on our study of Christ in the Old Testament, and we're in the third and final segment of that study, having studied all of the prophecies of the coming of Christ and having studied all the personal appearances of Christ in the Old Testament in what we theologically identify as Christophanies. And now we're looking at uh, the types and the shadows of Christ in the Old Testament, the, the less obvious but equally as important portions that point forward to Christ in a symbolic way. And each one of these types and shadows, uh, remember, Christ is not those things, but he is in some way represented by those things. And they're pointing forward either to some aspect of the person of Christ or some aspect of the work that he would accomplish when he came in his first coming. And uh, so far, what we're doing is we're breaking that section into seven smaller sections, and we're finishing tonight. This is part four of Christ in Old Testament things. And we're going to start tonight in um, Numbers chapter 17 with one of my personal favorites of, uh, of the types and shadows as it relates to specific things in the Old Testament. I'll read the first 10 verses of Numbers 17. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and get from them staffs, one for each father's house. From all their chiefs, according to their father's houses, 12 staffs. Write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on the staff of Levi. Of course, Aaron descended from the tribe of Levi. For there shall be one staff for the head of each father's house. Then you shall deposit them in the tent of meeting. So he was to take the 12 staffs and he was to bring them into the tabernacle. And you'll deposit them there before the testimony, which means they were even to be brought into the holiest of holies and placed before the Ark of the Covenant, which is here identified as the testimony, where I meet with you. And the staff of the man whom I choose shall sprout. Thus I will make to cease from me the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against you. Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and all their chiefs gave him staffs, one for each chief, according to their father's houses, twelve staffs. And the staff of Aaron was among their staffs. And Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the testimony. On the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony, and behold, the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from before the Lord to all the people of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his staff. And the Lord said to Moses, Put back the staff of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign for the rebels, that you may make an end of their grumblings against me, lest they die. Thus did Moses as the Lord commanded him, so he did. So at the end of this scenario, um, the staff of Aaron was taken by Moses and placed back in the Holy of Holies, back before the testimony, and it became one of the three items 
that was most closely associated for all of the succeeding generations of Israel with the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, there was within the Ark of the Covenant, within the, the box that was the actual um, bulk of the, of the uh, Ark of the Covenant, uh, there was a, a, a jar, an earthenware jar filled with manna, which we looked at last week in our study. There was the two tablets of stone upon which the Lord with his own finger had written the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And now this third item is being added to that collection. And this is not just some randomized collection. These are intentional additions to what would be in the box. The staff of Aaron would be in there. So um, what's going on with this story? Backstory, we won't have time to read it. I'd recommend if you, if you wanted to really understand the backstory, you'd need to read all of chapter 16. It's an account of one of the worst rebellions, though there were repeated incidents of rebellion of the grumbling and complaining children of Israel throughout their 40-year wilderness journey in the Sinai wilderness. This was pro- probably the worst of those rebellious moments. And there was a group led by um, led by a, a, a chief rebel who um, led the, the uprising against the Lord. And it was really not so much directly against the Lord, but only indirectly because it was a rebellion that was calling into question, why is Aaron and why are Moses uh, separated from us and, and made to rule over us? Why are they b- being placed in charge of us? We're just as spiritually capable as they are. We're just as mature as they are. You know, why can't we be as much in charge as they're in charge? And so the Lord, in what we've just read in the first few verses of chapter 17, is doing this in order to resolve forever the question of who's in charge in Israel. And it's at this moment in time, it's a pair. The pair are, are chosen by the Lord and appointed by the Lord. Those, those two are Moses and Aaron, his brother. Moses in the role of prophet and Aaron in the role of high priest. And um, these are by, of course, the appointment of the Lord. But they represent who will bear God's authority among the people of Israel for all of the succeeding generations of Israel's history, only later to be joined by a third role of authority, which is the king. At this point in history, there's no king in Israel, and it's right that there's yet no king in Israel because the Lord himself was recognized as the king over Israel, but there is an earthly high priest and there is an earthly prophet. Later, the people, as you know, will cry out for a king to be appointed for them just so they can be like the surrounding nations. It's a, it's a wrong perspective that leads them to that request. But nevertheless, they will call out for a king and then you'll have prophet, priest, and king. But at this point, what the Lord is wanting to demonstrate is who's in charge of Israel. And the focal point here is upon the high priest's role because the Lord chooses not the staff of Moses, which, of course, Moses carried a staff. It was an important staff. It was a symbolic staff. The Lord used it to accomplish amazing and miraculous things through the hand of Moses, including the splitting of the Red Sea, including the miracles done in the presence of Pharaoh uh, at the beginning of the Exodus journey. But here, the focus is on the staff that the high priest carries, which up until this moment in time, wasn't recognized as a particularly significant thing. It just happened to be the, the stick 
that Aaron used to help him walk through the wilderness. Just like all of the other men of Israel had sticks, and just like um, all of the 12 heads of the 12 tribes had sticks. And so the Lord has them all, all of the heads of the tribes assemble their staffs, their large sticks, their walking sticks, so to speak. And they're brought into the tabernacle of the Lord. And then this miraculous thing happens overnight. The Lord predicted that it would happen, what we would call a prophecy. He said, the, the one whom I've chosen, his staff is going to sprout. And then they put the staffs in the um, tabernacle of the Lord. And overnight, the, the staff of Aaron sprouts and not only sprouts. Look again at verse 8. The staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds and produced blossoms and it bore ripe almonds. Why all four of these when the Lord had only mentioned the day before that it was going to sprout? Because these four things that are identified that happen to the staff of Aaron are the four life stages of a living tree as it reproduces itself. So as a tree reproduces, it first sprouts and then it puts forth buds on its branches and those buds produce blossoms, flower blossoms of some variety. And we're talking about fruit bearing trees, of course. And then the the final stage of its reproduction is it produces seeds that are capable of, of reproducing that tree. In this case, it happens to be uh, a production of ripe It bore ripe almonds, meaning that's the seed of the tree. So clearly, what tree was Aaron's staff originally attached to before it was disconnected and turned into a walking stick? It was part of an almond tree. So what does all this mean and how does it relate to Christ? Um, First, let's turn a little bit earlier back to the book of Exodus. chapter 25 and this is something we'll briefly revisit in our probably our next section of studies Uh, as I mentioned there's some overlap between these different sections this is one case of that this is the description of the the instructions of the Lord to Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness and not just the, the tent structure, the outer structure of the tabernacle, but all of the, the furnishings of that structure. One of the most important furnishings was the light source of that structure. There was only a single light source within it. And that light source is what we call the, the um, lampstand of the tabernacle. So let's read a brief description of the construction of the lampstand. And we're reading from verse 31. You shall make a lampstand. This is the Lord speaking, of course. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work, its base, its stems, its stems, excuse me, singular, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out from its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it and three branches of the lampstand out from the other side of it. So what you have is a, you have a central staff or a central uh, core like a, like a pole 
and a base underneath that. And then out from that central pole on one side, you have three branches. And on the other side, you have three branches. And then uh, I think I left off reading in verse 33. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms each with calyx and flower on the other branch so for the six branches going out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand so Uh, And it goes on to give some more details connected to the lampstand. So what what is the point in the lampstand construction of construct it so that you will see a representation in the, the way the branches are designed, you'll see a representation of almond blossoms. The point is the lampstand, while it was an actual light source in the tabernacle was itself a symbol of something greater than just a lampstand it was a symbol of a tree so you had a a symbolic spiritual representation of a tree right as the the main light source in god's house which he identified as his tabernacle and what kind of tree is being represented in the house of the lord again an almond tree so it's possible that the lamp stand and then later Aaron's rod or staff that budded and, and blossomed and produced ripe almonds on it. It's possible that the two are completely disconnected and it's just a random coincidence that both are representing almond trees. But most likely, and I will say with confidence and certainty, this isn't a random uh, occurrence uh, of similarity of ominous, but that there's a intentional and purposeful symbolism that's being portrayed here. So why would the Lord want an almond tree in his house as the light source? And why would later, out of all of the trees of ancient Israel, ancient Egypt, and ancient Sinai wilderness, which are all of the, the locations where Israel could have taken a staff and Aaron could have taken a, a stick from a tree to turn into a walking staff. Why of all of the trees did the Lord want Aaron's staff to be made out of a branch from the almond tree? It has everything to do with the significance of the almond tree and how the almond tree is uniquely intended by the Lord to symbolically point forward to Christ. So let's turn over from here now to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is all going to re- relate once I lay out the, the connected elements. This is all going to relate symbolically as it points forward to Christ to why the Lord had Aaron's rod produce bl- sprouts, blossoms, buds, blossoms, and then ultimately uh, ripe almond fruit. We're reading in 1 Corinthians 15, and of course this is the great chapter in Paul's teaching about the resurrection of Christ, and there's just tons and tons of 
information about the resurrection, but I'm just going to capture one key verse in, in one of the ways that Paul chooses to describe the significance of the resurrection of Christ. And it, it has to do with one key word. It's in verse 20, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, some of you who are familiar with the Old Testament law of Moses, the law of God, uh, may be familiar with the laws relating to the sacrifice and the offerings connected to the first fruits of the harvest of Israel each year. And the Lord would have his people, I won't turn us back and read the law and develop the whole law, but essentially he had his people who were an agriculturally based people. Uh, each year as um, the trees would begin, we're talking about the fruit trees, they would begin to blossom and then they would begin to, to put forth their, their, their buds and their flowers and, and fruit would begin to develop on the tree. Um, he would have them to take the earliest part of the harvest and harvest the trees and then offer that first fruit of each new harvest season to the Lord in a special offering. And what was most commonly offered was from the tree that was the very, known as the very first fruiting tree of all of the variety of trees in Israel. Uh, You know how it is that not every tree works on the same exact schedule. Trees, generally speaking, all, if they're fruit trees, they'll all produce fruit every spring. But there are some trees that, that, that bud and blossom and produce fruit earlier than other trees. And in Israel, the first tree every year that would produce its fruit was the, take a guess, wild guess, the almond tree. So what does it have to do with Christ? Paul takes the imagery of first fruits from the Old Testament law, and he calls Christ in his resurrection from the dead, he calls him in verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, by fallen asleep, he's not referring to people that are taking a nap. He's talking about people who have died natural death in this world. And God's intention and purpose to eventually on the final day when the Lord returns in the event that we call the the second coming of Christ, it will be accompanied by two other great events. One is the final judgment. And in order to experience the final judgment, what the Lord is going to do in his coming is he's going to raise people from the dead so that they can face final judgment. And those that that please the Lord will enter into an eternal blessing with him and those that displease the Lord will uh, enter into eternal punishment. But here, Paul describes Christ as the first fruits. And what's meant by that is just like Israel was to take the first portion of the harvest and dedicate it to the Lord, which was a symbolic act in order to say, Lord, I'm just giving you the very first portion of my harvest I'm not going to give you every piece of fruit that's produced on my farm, but I'm going to give you the first portion as a symbolic representation that the whole harvest really belongs to you. All of the fruit belongs to you, but thankfully you allow me to keep most of it and eat most of it, but I'm giving the first portion to you to signify that I recognize it's all yours. 
So when Christ rose again from the dead in what we would call the midst of history, it was the guarantee of an eventual and final and ultimate harvest of the resurrection of all others. Some to life, as the Gospel of John tells us, and some to punishment. The point being is that Christ's resurrection is called the first fruits because it guarantees the resurrection of everyone else eventually. So now going back to Aaron's uh, scenario with the, the 12 staffs being placed before the Lord and one of them, the staff of Aaron, which prior to that day, Aaron had been using it. He'd been leaning on it. He'd been walking with it. But that was what we would call a dead stick. It was a special stick because it belonged to the high priest, but that was the only thing special about it. The idea is it had been disconnected from the tree and it had no life within it. It had no natural capacity to produce any fruit like it formerly could have as long as it was attached to the almond tree. And so when the Lord caused it to supernaturally, miraculously, Uh, sprout, bud, blossom, and produce ripe almonds. It was a symbolic, but it was a real thing, but a symbolic miracle of the resurrection to come. It is an image of new life coming from what was only dead, naturally incapable of producing fruit, but now supernaturally capable of producing and demonstrating resurrection life. Why the test, though? The test with Aaron's staff, once and for all, proved who had the right to bear God's authority in this world. And it was pointed directly at the owner of the staff, who was Aaron, the great high priest of Israel. And of course, we all understand and know that Aaron's role as high priest is pointing forward in history to Christ as the ultimate and great high priest of heaven. And the idea is that God is linking in this type and shadow the resurrection of Christ to his authority as the great and heavenly high priest. It's his resurrection that sets him apart from all others and proves once and for all who has God's ultimate stamp of approval to bear all of God's authority in relationship to all of God's people and in relationship to everybody else in the world as well. So it's an image of resurrection, Aaron's staff coming back to life and producing almond blossoms, but it's also an image of authority and the signification of who has the authority to rule on God's behalf. All right, let's move from there to the next one in the book of Numbers also. This is now a little bit deeper into the book, chapter 24. And this passage is going to give us two things that are pointing forward symbolically to Christ. So we'll consider these two together because the Lord is intending for them to be considered together. And this is during the days of Balaam, who was a true prophet of the Lord, uh, though he had his issues, as uh, you know from the story. So um, we're going to read from Numbers 24, and I will start reading in verse 
15, and then we're going to skip down to um, verse 17. I'll just read from 15 through 17. Uh, This is Balaam speaking as the prophet of the Lord. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, meaning the Lord has opened his spiritual perception to understand things that are that are that were impossible for him to naturally see or, or perceive the oracle of the man whose eye is open the oracle of him who hears the words of god and knows the knowledge of the most high who sees the vision of the almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered falling down here just indicates that he was overwhelmed by what the Lord revealed to him. Verse 17 is the focal point of what he sees. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Lord Jesus. He doesn't know his name. And what he does know, however, about him is that he's coming. He's just not coming soon in relationship to Balaam's time in history. And he's coming and he's not coming near to where Balaam was physically located at that time in history. But he is nevertheless coming and the Lord revealed his coming, the first coming of Christ to Balaam. Verse 17, I see him but not now, I behold him but not near. And then these two images are given to describe this messianic figure. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It, the star and the the scepter, shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. All right, so um, the messianic figure is symbolically portrayed with these two, this double imagery of he is going to be in some way, the Messiah is going to be in some way like a star and in some way like a scepter. So the word star here just simply means, you know, the, the stars that are in the sky that we see each night when the sun goes down. Uh, what does this have to do with Christ? Um, the, the star imagery is a common imagery that's used more than once for the Messiah throughout the Old Testament, but it's an image of, of a particular type. Uh, let's jump back over real quick to 1 Corinthians 15 for just catching one verse. Back to the resurrection chapter. And here Paul is attempting to describe to the Corinthians the nature of the resurrection body that we will all receive. And as part of his description, he makes this statement in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 41. He says, There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. And what he means by that is simple. Um, how many of you have ever spent any time at all looking up at the stars at night? It's pretty obvious if you're paying attention that not all stars are as bright as others. Like last night, uh, I got home just after dark and I was looking up into the sky as I got out of my car and I noticed there was just one really, really bright star. It was probably the evening star, but I, I don't know for sure. But it was really bright and there were hardly any other stars that were visible in the sky. And the only reason that one was visible compared to the other stars is it's much brighter 
from our observation than the other stars. It doesn't mean that it is actually brighter. It just means from our perception, it looks brighter in comparison to the others. So it stands out more than the others. So what is a star an image of, according to Paul here in his description? It's an image of glory. It's an image of something brilliant in the heavens. It's a heavenly image. That's obvious because stars only are situated in the heavens. And it's an image of glory that stands out from the the blackness of the surrounding space. So you have a heavenly image joined with a glorious or an image of glory. Uh, Let's let's look at another... uh, Another couple of passages on this point. Second Peter, chapter one. Where Peter is going to take the star imagery and he is going to connect it very directly to Christ. Second Peter one nineteen. Peter says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. He's saying the world is like a dark place and the word of God that we're paying close attention to, according to Peter, is like a lamp that shines in a dark place. The lamp is appreciated more because of the surrounding darkness. If you have a, a blazingly bright day, you don't really need to light a lamp. The lamp is particularly beneficial, though, as it shines light as the surrounding uh, space is darkened. And then he goes on to say, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, his point is, that Christ is paralleled here or compared to the dawning of the morning star. I referred earlier to the evening star. There's also a well-known morning star, which is the brightest star in the dawn of a new day. So the morning star is an image of heavenly glory, but it also does something else. What does it signal? What is a morning star signal? It signals the beginning of a brand new day. So the arrival of the Messiah, as far back, and it's even before him, but as far back as the prophet Balaam was being um, identified symbolically by the Lord as a signal that when the Messiah arrives, it would be the arrival into this world of a heavenly glory that would be glorious set against the backdrop of a completely darkened world But his arrival, his coming, would signal the beginning of a new day in history. Meaning, when he arrives, history will never be the same after that point. Okay, one last passage on this star imagery. Uh, The very last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. Where Jesus himself takes the morning star imagery and applies it to himself. And this is, of course, how the book of Revelation begins to come to an end. 
Revelation 22.16 I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. I am the bright morning star. This is one of a collection of declarations by the Lord in Scripture uh, that we call the I am statements of the Lord, the I am declarations. And in this one, he says, I am the bright morning star. So again, this, this combination of symbolism, heavenly, glorious, and new day dawning in history, changing history from that point forward. All right, one last passage, and now we're going to shift to the other image. We studied this in great detail, but it's been a few years back when I took you through the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. So this will be just like a quick reminder of what we've already studied. This is the scepter imagery. Remember in Balaam's prophecy, he described the arrival of the Messiah as the arrival of a star, but he also described his arrival as the arrival of a scepter. And here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, this is quoting God the Father speaking about and to his Son. But of the, of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness, or we could translate that the scepter of righteousness, meaning the scepter being an an image, a symbol of authority, kingly dominion. It was a a short staff, not a long walking stick, but it was a short staff that was usually covered in gold and encrusted with jewels, and it would be held in the right hand of the king when he sat upon his throne to make rulings. And whenever someone was approaching his throne, the scepter would be extended toward that person, which was... Uh, the signal that the king was approving their approach. Because if anyone dared to approach the throne of the king without that gesture from the king with the pointing of his scepter, they would be executed by the guardians of the throne before they could even reach the proximity of the king's personal presence. But here the scepter of the kingdom is associated with righteousness and it is the scepter of the kingdom of God. And so the idea is the Son of God is going to, as the Messianic King, hold the scepter, which is the symbol of God the Father's fullness of authority in his kingdom. And so all of the Father's authority is vested in the Son, and he will express that authority in his dominion as the Messianic King throughout the duration of his kingdom in history all leading up, of course, ultimately to the second coming of Christ. Okay, so that's star and scepter imagery connected. Let's look at our third one. And I'm moving kind of fast tonight because, uh, remember, I wanted to finish. We have a total of four. I've got two more to cover, and I think we'll have just enough time to cover these last two. Uh, Malachi, last prophet of the Old Testament. Again, this one we studied in detail when we did our exposition of the book of Malachi a while back. But uh, this will be a quick review of that, this portion. Chapter 4. And what I want you to notice is, in some of these Old Testament things, 
there's an actual practical thing at that moment in history and some are just references in words meaning the prophet is painting a picture in his words pointing to specific things this is one of those pictures in words of a specific thing that was based in real world familiarity of the people and I got to get back to Malachi I'm still in Matthew here okay Malachi 4 I'll read starting in verse 1 For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, which is an imagery of coming judgment. When all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble, and that stubble by implication is going to be burned in the fiery oven of the one who is coming on that day. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will not, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, so there's a contrast being made, a comparison and a contrast being drawn between two groups. And these two groups will experience this coming day in dramatically different ways. One group is characterized as arrogant and evil. The other group is characterized as you who fear my name. Obviously, those who know the Lord, who honor the Lord, who are following the Lord, and though not perfect, they are committed to him. For you who fear my name, and this is the image I wanted to focus our attention on, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The result being you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Um, We're not a a farm-based, ranch-based society here. Um, How many of you have ever been to a farm? How many of you have ever seen a a calf that's been um, in the barn all winter, and now it's the first day of spring, and the calf is being let out from its stall for the first time and the doors of the barn open and here goes the cows out of their stalls and do they just kind of meander out of their stalls looking for some grass to munch on uh, generally I mean you think cows are kind of slow and kind of cumbersome and kind of uh, you know kind of low-key always and they often are low-key but I've seen videos of cow- calves and cows even Uh, fully mature ones coming out of the barn after a a hard winter first time they've seen the sun first time they've had the fresh air and first time they've had the opportunity to go and munch on some fresh grass and they come out and they're jumping around like like they were just newly born so you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and it's all in relationship to this imagery of the arrival or the rising of the son of righteousness so the imagery is jesus in his arrival is being compared to the sun in the sky and the sun in the sky is in in spite of the fact that it's a really really hot day today and we've got the air conditioning on we're kind of grateful at this moment to be out of the sun but generally speaking what would happen if the sun were to just suddenly blink out of existence i mean i'm talking about the sun at the center of our solar system 
What would happen to the planet? What would happen to you? What would happen to me, naturally speaking, practically speaking, if the sun suddenly burned out and just was shining no more? What would happen? You wouldn't die instantly. You would die pretty quick. Because it's going to get really cold really fast and nothing will grow because all the plants are dependent upon photosynthesis in order to grow. Photosynthesis is, of course, the plant's ability by the creative handiwork of the Lord to turn sunlight into stuff you can eat. It's amazing. It's a wonderful, it's an awesome system. Um, But without sunlight, the plants aren't going to grow. You're not going to have anything to eat. You say, well, I could just eat meat. Sorry, the meat eaters eat the plants. And so no plants grow, the meat eaters are going to die, and therefore you're going to die one way or the other. Uh, So the idea here is the rising of the sun. Here is a wonderful image. It's not an image of, man, that sun is really hot today. Let me get into the air conditioning. It's an image of life-giving. It's the image of new life, and it's connected to righteousness. It's a sun of righteousness. The idea being that the rays that are coming out from this sun that's being described, which is similar, spiritually speaking, to the sun that's in the natural sky above this planet, is a different kind of sun. It's not just shining natural light, it's, it's outraying righteousness. And how often does the sun actually shine? We don't see it shine 24-7 because the earth turns, and we're not always in relationship to see the sun. At night, we're on the far side of the planet from the sun. But the earth turns around again, and you notice the sun never stops shining. It shines 24-7. The idea of of this image is Christ is 24-7 outshining righteousness. Now, let me connect this back to Hebrews 1 real quick to another passage that we studied in detail. It's one of the descriptions of Christ and his ministry, and his effect and influence on his people. This is from Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, this is the Son, S-O-N, he is the radiance of the glory of God. He's, he, it could be translated this way. He's the outshining. He's the outrain of God's glory. Meaning, the sun is inherently glorious. But the only way you and I can perceive that it's inherent, inherently glorious is for the rays of the sun to travel from the surface of the sun to our planet and hit the atmosphere. And we see through the atmosphere the brilliance of the rays of the sun when they reach this planet. So the idea being that Christ is like a sun shining in the sky, beneficially affecting and influencing everyone that comes into proximity to him, that observes him. And what they see is not just natural light, but they see an even more glorious light. They see an outrain of God's own righteousness in the person of his son. And as the Malachi prophecy goes on to say about the son of righteousness, it shall rise with healing in its wings, just like 
When the sun rises, it heals the earth from the ravages of winter. When Christ arrives as Messiah, he heals the world in terms of all who know him and come to believe in him and follow him. He heals them of the ravages of life without his righteous light in our lives. All right. Um, let's, Let's look at this one other passage on that real quick. Just one verse in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I don't want to leave this one out. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verse 78. And this is a prophecy given by the father of John the Baptist, who was a priest serving in the temple of God by the name of Zechariah. In this circumstance, uh, he, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 67 and prophesied. And I'm just going to quote one of the lines from his prophecy. And that is, in a, he's just, I'll go ahead and read three lines. Uh, verse 76. And it's speaking about Zechariah's own son, John the Baptist. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby, and now he's shifting from the role of his son as the introducer, the forerunner of the Messiah, to the actual arrival of the one that John the Baptist is sent to introduce. And that is, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So the arrival of the Messiah is like the arrival of a brand new, healing, wonderful, like have you ever gotten up when it's not terribly in the heat of summer, just in like a spring day, and you walk outside and it's just that warm bathing light and you just kind of stand there and soak it in and you feel better just because you're standing in the sunlight. That's the imagery here to describe the arrival of the Messiah into this world. All right, that brings us to our very last Old Testament thing. Now, I I say last. I chose 12 things, 12 messianic symbols in in various things of the Old Testament. There's not just a total of 12. There are more than 12. But these 12 will give us a good sense of how the Lord is represented by Old Testament things. So this is the last that I chose, and it's in the book of the Prophecy of Daniel. And we, again, did study this in great detail, but it's been about 10 years. I wouldn't expect you to necessarily remember it. Uh, We're in Daniel chapter 2. And you might be familiar with the section. It's the, uh, the circumstance here is the troubling dream that God himself gave to the king of Babylon, which at this moment in history was the first great world-dominating empire. And Nebuchadnezzar was sitting on top of that empire as the emperor of Babylon, the king of Babylon. And he has a dream one night that deeply troubles his soul. And he calls for all of his, his counselors and his astrologers. And he says, look, I had this troubling dream. I want you to explain it to me. And they all say, King, just tell us what you dreamed and we'll explain it to you. And he says, I don't really trust you. 
I'll trust you if you can tell me what I dreamed and then explain it to me. And of course, all of the counselors and the astrologers astrologers are stuck because they have no idea what the king dreamed. And um, Daniel and his companions, who are at this point counted among the king's counselors, uh, Daniel um, asks for the knight to go and seek the Lord and is granted that. And he goes and with his companions seeks the Lord and the Lord reveals to Daniel exactly what the king actually dreamed and reveals to Daniel the meaning of the dream, the explanation of the dream, the spiritual significance of the dream. And so he goes back to the king and he says, king, this is what you dreamed. You dreamed about a giant statue. And that's exactly, of course, what the king had dreamed. And the giant statue had four metallic sections to it, a head of gold, shoulders and arms of silver, a midsection of bronze, and then legs and feet of iron, and the feet of iron were actually iron mixed with clay. And it's this, this imposing statue, and it troubles the king, but he gets really troubled, rightfully so, when something happens to the statue, and that's where I want us to uh, read the description here in verse, uh, starting in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its mid- middle and thighs of, I mean, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And this, this part uh, probably really stupefied the king. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay. This stone in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is a symbolic image of Christ, the arrival of Christ in his first coming into this world. The image itself represented, if you remember our study, the progression of four great world-dominating empires, starting with the empire of Babylon, which is represented by the head of gold, then that empire would eventually be conquered and dominated by the second empire, which was going to be a little bit less glorious, but but it would conquer the most glorious empire, and that would be the Medeo-Persian empire, represented by the two shoulders and the two arms of silver, two peoples united in one empire, Medeo-Persian empire. And then they would eventually be conquered by a third kingdom, which would be represented by the bronze, and that happened to correspond to the Greek empire under the leadership of Alexander the Great, who conquered the Persian empire. And then finally, Alexander and his empire were conquered, though Alexander had already died by this point, Uh, his empire that remained was conquered and dominated by the final empire, which was the Roman Empire. And then in the days of the Roman Empire, which is now we're at the feet of iron mixed with clay, and I'm not going to go into all the details of why that is. I explained all this in the the Daniel study, and uh, those, uh, those studies are still available on Sermon Audio. But in the days of the Roman Empire... A stone, as we've now come to this part in verse 34, 
was cut out by no human hand. Now, what is the significance of the stone first as an image? And what is the significance of the stone being cut out by no human hand? Mostly, it was common in those days to have stone workers for the construction of temples and, and great structures to go to, to the mountains and carve out, to cut out from the mountains uh, uh, stones for, for the purpose of building empires. This is a stone cut out by no human hand, meaning this is a, a divine origin stone. No human being is producing this stone. It's an, it's an image of the entry of Christ into this world and what we know as the virgin birth. By no human effort was this stone brought into the world. A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image, the stone that struck the image begins to change now in verse 35. It became a great mountain. So the stone grows. It's no longer a stone. Now it's a whole mountain. And then the mountain continues to grow, and it grows so large, it grows so dominatingly that it fills the whole earth. And that's the conclusion. This was the dream. And now we'll tell you of its interpretation. He goes on, as much as Daniel understands of the dream, he goes on to explain to the king about how you're the head of stone, and he lays out the four empires in the way that I've already described it. All right, so later in the New Testament, we won't take the time to turn there, but uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter associates Christ uh, with a special stone, a stone that is unlike any other, a cornerstone, the the beginning stone of a, a new empire in a sense, a new structure that God is building into the earth that's replacing all prior human structures or all prior human authorities. In other words, he, ha- he is both destructive and constructive in his arrival. He's destroying those things that, that humanity have, have, have leaned on and placed their hopes and, and trusts in, and he is replacing that as he is bringing down the empires of humanity with a new and greater kingdom, a new and greater empire in which he is the first and the most significant and greatest stone in that structure. Now, um, the idea, of course, ultimately is this is an image of Christ in his divine origin, but in his role in in, in both tearing down natural and human kingdoms that are set up in rebellion against God and replacing them with a new and greater structure that represents the authority that comes only from God as established by the authority of heaven itself. All right, so we've gotten the four done. Uh, We're finished with our study of Christ in the Old Testament things. Uh, We've got four parts of that concluded, and we've got six other segments of Christ uh, symbolized by various Old Testament uh, items, and uh, I will choose another one of our our seven sections, and we will start that, Lord willing, uh, next Thursday night. God bless you.